Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 7, Paul writes, For none of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then... Each of us shall give account of himself to God. This week I was looking at the headlines and i not making this up. Fired, gun-toting pastor refuses to leave Alabama church. This at ChristianHeadlines.com. A handgun-carrying pastor in Alabama was fired by church leaders from Friendly Missionary Baptist Church. But the pastor refuses to leave. Pastor Cedric Stringer replaced the leaders against carrying weapons in church with a new group of deacons and trustees. Quote, he told us nobody can fire him but God, unquote, said opposing deacon Michael Alexander. Both the fired church leaders and the current deacons, along with Stringer, have hired lawyers and they've taken the case to court, reports the Christian Post. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But there are churches that live in that world. In chapter 14, Paul is dealing with the problem. Of questionable things. Now remember, when we use the term questionable things, what does that mean? Let me help you. A questionable thing is that for which there is no proof of sin. So broadly, things fall into two categories. Things that are sinful. Maybe three categories. Things that are sinful... Things that aren't sinful and things where there's no evidence whether or not it is a sin. Paul knew that sincere Christians can and do disagree about things. Paul calls on Christians to face their problems and solve their problems. He doesn't lay down a list of approved things. No guns in church. Disapproved things. Instead, Paul calls on the reader to examine his or her own attitude. What is the proper attitude that we should have towards one another as we struggle with those debatable areas of conduct? Now remember, those are the things where there's no clear command or prohibition. Paul illustrates these debatable things by bringing attention to the issue of diet and days or 
food and feasts in verses 2 through 6. Paul says that we're not to judge one another on such matters in verse 3 and in verse 9. Because God has received the weaker and the stronger in verses 1 through 3. We may differ in good conscience in verses 4 through 6. We will all be judged by the Lord Jesus in verses 7 through 12. We may choose to enjoy or we may choose to abstain, but there's a principle of freedom that we employ that informs us and guides us and consecrates our attitudes and our actions. You may not be familiar, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31... It says, we do all things to the glory of God. Whatever you eat or whatever you drink, do it as unto the Lord. And so in this passage, Paul gives us three principles. Three principles that are intended to curb contempt. To avoid the dangers of hypercriticism and judgmentalism. Number one, we remind ourselves that we share as Christians a common goal in verse 7. Number two, we share a common Lord in verses 8 and 9. We share a common future or a common judgment, it says in verses 10 through 12. Chuck Swindoll put it this way, quote, In the end, we won't be rewarded for taking the right side. On disputable issues. For Paul has made it clear. There is no right side. There is no wrong side. Instead we'll be praised. Or not praised. For the attitudes that we've displayed. On how we've treated those. Who disagree with us. Do we have room in the body of Christ. For those who are comfortable with their freedom. Exercising it with discretion and good judgment, unquote. And I love that Swindoll brings that up. Our freedom is a freedom that's exercised in discretion and good judgment. If you insist on carrying a gun at church, it's probably a bad idea to wave it in somebody's face. We share a common goal. Look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. Paul points to this great, big idea. We're not alone. We're related. We're connected. We may live in a dark cloud of disconnectedness, but Paul brings us back to biblical reality. None of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. Christians do not live alone. Christians are never alone. Christians cannot live alone. They cannot love alone. And it will never be necessary for the Christian to die alone. Paul is bringing up a point. In the very real world in which we live, we see each other. 
we see Jesus. And when we see each other and we see Jesus, we live under the constant expectation of the culmination of all things of future judgment. Right now, people all over the world are are watching the World Cup. I'm out. Italy's gone. Gone, gone, gone. But championship teams attract the best players in their respective countries. The winning teams, however, will have common elements. Do you know what every single great team, when you come to the final two rounds, will have? Every single great team will have great coaching. There will be a profound respect for each player's role. There will be a willingness on the part of each player to trust their coach and trust each other. They share a common purpose and a common goal. That that shared offense, that shared defense, that's part of the point. Each will do what is necessary to mount the appropriate defense and to generate the appropriate offense. Our common purpose and our common goal is to know our singular Lord and to make him known. This is what we do. We know Jesus and we Share with others the truth about Jesus. Count Zinzendorf, who was a German reformer and he was the head of the Moravian church and and generated one of the most incredible evangelistic outreaches that the world has ever known. He lived between 1700 and, and 1760. He gave to the members of his group a seal ring. Each person who entered into his fellowship were were given a ring and it was engraved in Greek, none of us liveth to himself. It was the common pledge that people made to one another as they began to understand that we live for Christ and we live for each other and none of us lives to himself. So what does Paul mean? When he says that everyone is either living or dying to the Lord, he means that in the end we belong to Jesus. Now, I want you to also understand something else that he means. He's hinting at the fact that only God can determine the time and the manner of our death. There's a little illustration that's given in John's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 15 through 21, where the resurrected Jesus comes in contact with Peter, James, and John. But with Peter and John, he is having a conversation with them. And he instructs Peter and he says, you have lived your life the way that you wanted to live. But there's going to come a time. There's going to come a time in your life where you don't get to go where you want to go and you don't get to do what you want to do. And someone else is going to take you by the hand. And someone else is going to lead you to the place where you may not necessarily want to go. And Peter looks at John the Apostle and says, what about him? And Jesus says, don't you worry about him. You need to be concerned about yourself. Because it is Jesus 
who establishes your appointment with the future. That's why the Christian must never say, the the Christian can never say, this is my life, and I'll do as I please. Or if you grew up in my world, you can never sing, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. It isn't your party. Jesus has orchestrated the events of your life. All things are to be done or left undone in light of what the Spirit says and what the Lord does or wouldn't do. Paul reminds us that Jesus is the goal of our lives, loving him, pleasing him, obeying him. We also share a common Lord. Look at verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Note the repetition of the phrase, Lord. We live to the Lord. We die to the Lord. We are the Lord's. This is an important part. No Christian can play God or assume the role of God or the Holy Spirit in another Christian's life. Eight times in verse 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, Paul repeats the word Lord. So many people want to function in the role of Holy Spirit in another person's life. People want to convince, convict, rebuke, challenge others in the areas of non-essential doctrine. We can pray, we can support, we can advise, we can encourage other Christians. But you're never, ever, ever given permission to serve in the role of God in another person's life. You know, there are three great things that should be cherished by every single believer. How to love, how to live, and how to die. We should cherish the reality that we have the opportunity to love in Christ and live in Christ. But many of us have no idea of how to die. You know, I've been a pastor for a very, very long time. I have been to many, many hospital rooms. I have visited many, many people at that very moment of death. When family gathers, where moms and dads and brothers and sisters or or friends and family gather around your father or your grandfather, your grandmother or your mother, you gather around and you can see the difficulty that, that takes place because some people die well and other people don't die well at all. I remember on one occasion with grace and beauty and dignity. A mom communicated her love for her children and her grandchildren, the graciousness of God, the love of Jesus, the grace and mercy of Christ. And her daughter burst into tears and she left the hospital room. And I said to her, your mom has given you so many great lessons. 
She's instructed you in so many ways. Remember, she was there at the beginning of your life. She was there throughout your life. There were so many things that she needed to teach you. And there was one thing left untaught. And that's what she just did. You see, the truth is, we live and we love and we die to Christ. We learn how to live when we learn how to die. We learn about the love of God from the cross of Calvary. And that's what we just sang. That's what it means in the book of Romans. Here in his love, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And so, in verse 9, look what it says. For to this end, Christ died and rose again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Paul is in effect saying, Jesus is Lord. But you knew that. You already knew that. But what you may not have known is that you don't have to be the Lord. Jesus has died and Jesus has risen from the dead and he is the Lord of both the living and the dead. Now remember, who is Paul writing to? The Romans. This isn't a seance. He's not writing to the dead. He is writing to the living. And because he's writing to the living, he's writing to you. Paul knows that Jesus is the Lord of the living, not you. And so the challenge for us is why won't we accept that? Why do we presume to be the Lord over someone else's life? And in the beginning of the chapter, Paul insists that we accept each other in Christ. That we accept each other In the non-essentials. That we accept that Jesus is our Lord and their Lord. We live with our brother in view that we're always keeping Jesus in the picture. We live our lives because we understand that Jesus is watching. He's died and, and he's rose again. In other words, this isn't some empty theological treatise. This isn't some some empty, eviscerated reality that a real Jesus is really alive. We live our lives because we know that Jesus is watching and we test all things by how they play out in the presence of the living Jesus. And so he says we share a common Lord, but Look what else. We share a common judgment in verses 10 and 11. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The first question seems to be focused on the weaker brother. Remember in chapter 14 verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith. He who is weak eats only vegetables in verse 2. Who is the weaker brother? This is the one with the hypersensitivity. This is the one who draws the fences and the prohibitions very close to the vest. This is the brother, remember, who thought that meat was disgusting and contaminating and degrading. 
This is the person who believes that the prohibitions that they have in their own life also apply to everybody else's life. And so Paul says, why do you judge your brother? The second question seems to be addressed to the stronger brother. Why do you show contempt? Exo, thuneo. Remember, it was translated in verse 3, despise. Here, it's translated show or hold in contempt. Remember, the word meant to look down. A modern idiomatic expression might be your nose is up in the air. Your face is looking up, but your heart's looking down. And that's how many people translate it. Look down. George Swinnick writes, quote, A desire to disgrace others never sprang from grace, unquote. A desire to disgrace others never sprang from grace, We would do well to take that to heart. Another question we should ask about the text is this. What do the strong and the weak have in common? According to the Bible, they'll both appear before Christ. Daniel Webster was once asked what he considered to be his greatest thought. He replied, quote, my personal accountability to God, unquote. In other words, when Webster was asked to reflect on the thing that preoccupies him the most, the thing that informs his thinking, the thing that governs how he lives throughout the day and he thinks about at night and he projects into the future, it was his own accountability before God. Each of us will give an account to God and whether we like it or not, whether we fear it or not, we're responsible to God. By the way, there are seven great judgments that are mentioned in the Bible. I mention them in passing, not because not any of you will be officiating at any of these judgments. I mention them in passing to remind you and encourage you that all of these judgments have been entrusted to someone other than me and other than you. The first is the believer's sin. That's number one. This is the judgment that took place on the cross of Calvary. According to John chapter 12, verse 31. And John chapter 5, verse 24. In John 5, 24, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. And then again in John chapter 12, verse 31. It says this, now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The judgment took place on the cross of Calvary. The issue of sin has been forever settled in the payment of Christ. The second judgment is the believer's walk. This judgment will take place at God's throne of grace, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31, it says this, For 
if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. It was Paul's way of saying, if you would take the time to evaluate your thoughts and your speech and your life, then you're not going to have to worry about anything. This judgment will take place at God's throne of grace, and we'll talk more about that. The believer's sin, the believer's walk, the believer's works, that's number three. This judgment will occur in what's been called the Bema seat, or the judgment seat of Christ, or the elevated platform. This is the place of reward. This is the place of withholding of rewards. This is what some have rightly called the trophy room of God. Or the place where God hands out the medals. Number four, the nations of the earth. The nations of the earth will be judged according to Matthew chapter 25, verse 32. And 1 Corinthians again, chapter 11, verse 31. Jesus returns. He separates the sheep from the goats. He puts the goats on his left side. Think left. He puts the sheep on his right side. Think right. Who goes on the left? Goats. Who goes on the right? Sheep. Who makes the determination? Jesus. There's a fifth judgment. Israel will be judged in the wilderness according to Ezekiel chapter 20 verse 37. Number six, angels. They'll be judged in heaven according to Jude chapter 1 verse 6 in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3. Then there's a final judgment of the unconverted dead. They will be judged at the great white throne judgment according to Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 and 12. The vast group of people will stand before the true and living God. The books will be opened and they'll give an account of their life. The judgment seat of Christ is mentioned only twice. In the New Testament, both times it refers to the judgment of believers. Here in chapter 14, in verse 10, the last sentence, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul repeats it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where it says, quote, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust that we are well known to your conscience. Since we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that is to receive the things done in the body. Does this mean the reception of sin? No, that judgment has already taken place on the cross of Calvary. Now the illustration breaks down at some point, but in the World Cup, when the players are playing on the team, they can be fined, they can be fouled, they can, they can experience censure. But when it comes time for the awarding of the medals, everybody, everybody, everybody who participates in the World Cup 
It's a glorious, wonderful, wonderful opportunity to represent your country. And some will be rewarded. And some will not receive reward. And some will, the very participation will become the reward. So the word judgment seat or bema was a word that meant the raised platform. This was the place where the magistrate or the judge would climb the steps. They would ascend the steps in order to hear the legal cases. It was called a tribunal. And by the way, the original word, bema, it comes from a a root word that meant to step. It came to mean to go up the steps of the tribunal. But in a very real sense, it also reflects our steps, our footprints, the places where we've walked. The idea being you place your foot one in front of the other. The places where you've walked, the things that you've done. At the judgment seat of Christ, the footprints, if you will, are examined. The examination takes place of where we walked and how we walked. And the revelation of where we walked and how we walked will be revealed by fire. Since every man's works fall into two categories. Temporal or eternal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, Paul writes, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. There is a work that you have never worked. You're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the work of Jesus The work of Jesus in your life will remain forever. Whatever work you have done will fall into two categories. Things that matter, things that don't. Things that are temporal, things that are eternal. The real question that we have to to ask is a different one. And that is how do we prepare for this judgment seat of Christ? (laughs) The answer is so simple. Make Jesus the Lord and live for him. It really is that simple. Know him. Make him known. William MacDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary on this passage writes, quote, I've, I've been to the ruins of Corinth and you can still see the carved on the wall where Gallio once sat on the judgment seat at Corinth. I've been there too. Acts chapter 18, verses 12 through 16 and 17. In Corinth, there's steps to this very day. There's a large stone inscribed on it. It says, Gallio. MacDonald writes, This judgment has more to do with service than sin. It's a time of review and a time of reward, unquote. 
By the way, the same word is used to describe the place where Pilate renders his verdict against Jesus in Matthew 27, 19 and John chapter 19, verse 13. It's the same word that's used of Festus in Acts chapter 25, verse 6, and then again in verse 7, where Paul, of necessity, then makes an appeal to Caesar. All were Roman governors. They were all tasked with the job to pass judgment on the guilty and to exonerate the innocent. And so Paul, Paul, Paul was keenly aware that one day he would stand before the judge of all. No wonder, no wonder, no wonder. In Acts chapter 24, verse 16, Luke has Paul saying, quote, I always seek to have a conscience Void of offense toward God and toward men. Paul is living in the constant covering and expectation that he's going to stand before God. But just for purposes of discussion, let's look back at verse 10 again and ask a different question. When you look at verse 10 and you see the question, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? I think what Paul is in fact doing is he's not inviting you to answer the question. He he thinks that the answer is self-evident. In a very real sense, he's basically saying, please don't do this. But just for purposes of discussion, let's attempt to answer that question. Why indeed would we do it? Why indeed would we judge? Why indeed would we show contempt? And I think that in part the answer seems to lie in the fact that some of us want to make non-essential issues vital issues. If you want to make a non-essential issue a vital issue, the chances are you're going to run into trouble. Again, remember what I've said. Think of a non-essential issue this way. No proof of sin, diacresis, dialogizomon, verse 1, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes, doubtful disputations. We may have strong feelings about something. We may have strong feelings about someone. We may even be convinced that sin is involved. We may be tempted to judge or show contempt when we think we're better than someone else, that we're more holy than someone else, that we're more obedient than someone else. But then that holiness and that obedience turns into something else. We think that we're tasked with the job of correction in verse 3. We try to play God in verse 4. We refuse to respect the opinions and convictions of others in verse 5. We question their motives in verse 6. We doubt the person's relationship to the Lord in verses 7 and 8. We forget our personal accountability to God in verses 10 through 12. We ignore the judgment seat of Christ. We forget that God has his own plans to judge me and to judge you. And to judge the nations. And so Paul points out. In the one case. That one brother condemns another brother. And the other 
case, one brother holds the other brother in contempt. And what he charges both is this, that both of them are disqualified from pronouncing judicial judgment on the other. For those of you who aren't a police officer or a lawyer, you may not know what the judicial pronouncement of guilt is. It's the verdict that is reserved for the judge. The citizen doesn't get to make the verdict. The police officer doesn't get to make the verdict. The lawyer doesn't get to make the verdict. The judge gets to make the verdict. And so Paul is in effect saying we have no right. We have no right to close another person's case before the Lord. Virgil Hurley wrote, quote, The Lord knows those who are his. He will determine the saved and the unsaved and will never ask any man's opinion. So let's not give it. (laughs) I love that. And look what it says in verse 11. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, Where is that written? Where is that written in verse 11? It's in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. In the old King James, it says this. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear, unquote. You know what's interesting? In Isaiah's passage, the person speaking is Jehovah. It's Jehovah God. Jehovah, as I live, says Jehovah. Every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. You know, we almost always apply this verse to the recalcitrant, to the hardened, to the rebellious sinner. For the person who seems disconnected from God and disconnected from the future. But here in its context, Paul quite possibly could be referring to both sinners and saints. Paul's point, if any particular issue or if any particular instance of belief or if any particular belief or behavior does not fall into the category where it is in full agreement with Jesus... It's going to be known. That's the point that he's talking about. When you're having an argument with your brother or your sister. Well I believe that this is sin. And the other brother says. I don't believe that it is. And one person cautiously says. Let's let Jesus decide. And the other one says. Okay. And then you realize that maybe the decision isn't going to take place right at that moment, but it will take place. The passage stresses the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the supreme authority. And you might think, really? He just, you just quoted Isaiah 45, 23. And in there it's Jehovah. But yet Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Listen carefully. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name 
which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, unquote. The passage stresses the lordship of Jesus. He's the supreme authority. He's the one with perfect knowledge. And because he's the supreme authority and because he is the one with perfect knowledge, he invites us, the reader, to concede that we're not the supreme authority and that we don't have supreme knowledge. And therefore, we dare not be the regulators of Christian liberty. And so in verse 12, look what it says. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. I'm going to read it again. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. And you might look at that and you might think, oh, each of us will give an account of himself to God. And you would not be incorrect because that's exactly what the text says. But remember the context. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. You're not going to give an account of the person sitting next to you. You're not going to give an account of the person sitting in back of you. You're not going to give an account of the person sitting behind you. You won't be giving an account of, to God. For anyone else, now don't get me wrong, if you're a mother, if you're a father, if you're a brother, if you're a sister, does that, or if you're a pastor, or if you're a leader, or if you're an employer, does God hold you accountable and responsible for the people who are in your life and the way you treat them? The answer is yes, but the point becomes, in the end, you're the one who's going to answer for you. Remember that the theme of the book is righteousness. The theme of the book of Romans is righteousness, how we need righteousness. The problem and condemnation of sin, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3. How righteousness is imputed through salvation and justification, the end of chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. How righteousness is imparted through sanctification and separation, chapter 6, 7, and 8. How righteousness is vindicated through the dispensation of grace and the sovereignty of God, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, how righteousness is practiced through application, through service in chapter 12, through citizenship in chapter 13, through conscience in chapter 14, our relationship to each other. Paul says, don't judge each other, verses 1 through 12. Don't hinder each other, verses 13 through 23. Imitate Jesus, chapter 15, verse 1. Why am I summarizing the book? Because remember what Paul has said. Let love be without hypocrisy. He basically says love each other without hypocrisy. You have liberty in Christ. The liberty includes living for each other. Loving each other. The liberty excludes condemnation and judgment. And since each of us will give an account to God, here's the invitation that Paul gives. Let's make it a good accounting. Let's make it a good accounting. 
Let's do what we know to do. Live in grace. Recognize the righteousness of Christ. You know, one of the great privileges of my life, one of the great privileges of my life is opening up this Bible and teaching it to you. But do you know what every good teacher wants? Every good teacher wants the pupil to pass the test. You know, I didn't always have good teachers growing up. For whatever reason, my math teacher and my science teacher felt that it was her job to make sure that I fail. To withhold the information that would be necessary for me to pass the test. I thought, that's crazy. And it would be crazy for me to withhold from you what Paul is saying. You're going to give an account for yourself, not for others. Warren Wiersbe relates the example of Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. He says that both were mighty preachers of God's word. In the late 19th century England, they enjoyed fellowship and they even exchanged pulpits from time to time. But there was a rift. Spurgeon accused Parker of being unspiritual and carnal. Do you know why? Because Joseph Parker attended the theater in London. And oddly enough, Spurgeon smoked cigars, which many would have considered something that no self-respecting Christian could ever do. And they broke fellowship over the ordeal. And it became so pitched and contrary and acrimonious that the problem even made the London newspapers how sad. Christians fighting with each other has made the news in every generation. Perhaps both were wrong. But have you ever discovered the fact that God will sometimes bless someone that you don't trust and that you don't agree with? There are gray areas. Can a Christian have a glass of wine? Can a Christian go to the movies? Can a Christian buy an expensive car or an expensive sound system? Can a Christian buy a computer when brothers and sisters are hungry or homeless or hurt? Can a Christian kiss on, the, on a date? Can Christians swim in a swimming pool? Can Christians wear makeup or earrings? Can Christians use tobacco or tattoos or pierce their body? Can a Christian wear expensive clothes? Can they use different translations of the Bible? Can they participate or watch sports on Sunday? Can a Christian listen to secular music? Paul and the other New Testament writers invite us to ask the question, is it a matter of condemnation? Is it a matter of commendation? Is it a matter of command? Is it a matter of prohibition? To put it another way, number one, does the scripture address the issue? And if the answer is yes, do what the, the scriptures command. And if the answer is no, Proceed to the next question. Do I believe as a matter of conscience and conviction by the Holy Spirit that it's all right for me to do this? And if the answer is no, you have your answer. For you to engage in it 
is sin for you? And number three, how will this involvement affect others? Will this activity destroy my brother or my sister? Will it wound the church? Will it disrupt fellowship? I heard the story of a father and a son who got into an argument and in the middle of the night the son had trouble sleeping and he went downstairs to the kitchen to fix himself a sandwich and the father was there and he was having trouble sleeping. And after they fixed sandwiches, the two began to reminisce about the past. They talked about Little League. They talked about hunting expeditions. They talked about swimming and fishing and trips and camping And as some needed healing began to take place, the son said, Dad, do you remember the time we went out onto the lake in that green boat? And the father said, Son, you're mistaken. The boat was blue. And the son said, Green. And the father said, Blue. And the son said, Green. And the father said, Blue. And the son departed. And he never went back home. Ever. Some things just don't matter. Some things just don't matter. And I pray that God will give us wisdom on what's essential and what isn't, what matters. And what doesn't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord. There's some treacherous waters. And there's some deep difficulties. Some people. Have. (laughs) Expressed great liberty in areas that we find. Not so charitably. To include freedom. And yet, Lord, we pray that we would make the issues of liberty and the issues of freedom issues that are defined by the Bible and not by our sensibilities. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray that you would give us wisdom and that we would ask different kinds of questions. How important is unity? How important is charity? How important is liberty? Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we have to make difficult decisions on how to go forward. But Lord, we pray that that we would do it with grace, with mercy, with generosity, with sensibility, and with wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.